The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. As you probably know, the main thing I do is the integration of Buddhist and Christian thought, and working primarily with the teachings of a 15th century Spaniard named John of the Cross, who was a Carmelite friar. And so it's Christian Carmelite spirituality that I blend mostly with, with Buddhist thought. Um, John and, and Buddhism are a natural. Some of you have heard my daughter Rebecca Bradshaw speak here. Um, Rebecca teaches at IMS. And um, she's spoken at Common Ground twice, I think, now. And when I gave Rebecca John of the Cross to read, I said, just read it, just read it. She came back with, she was barely into it. She came back within half an hour and said, Mom, this is Dhamma, this is Dhamma. I said, I, I told you it was. So it's, it's quite a beautiful fit. And what I'm going to do tonight is go sort of back and forth between themes from the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of John and of the Cross on, of course, the theme of suffering. Um, one other preliminary comment I want to make is when I've spoken here before, um, I have been asked why I didn't bring any of the out-of-print books, and I, oh, thank you, I was going to ask for that. If I start coughing, it's all lost. <laughs> Dry throat, you know, in the winter. Um, the only place that you can get the out-of-print books at a reasonable price is, is through me. I still have some that I bought up. And um, the one is on loving-kindness practice in done for Christians, again, it's that flipping back and forth between the Buddhist and the Christian traditions called Gentling the Heart, Buddhist Loving Kindness Practice for Christians. And then the other is an interfaith book on faith. And if anyone wants one, you can see me after they're $15 each. Someone told me they saw the Loving Kindness <coughs> on the internet for 80 but out of print books, people can ask for what they want. And with those preliminary remarks, I'm ready to get started. Um, those of you who are familiar with the teachings of the Buddha know that he talked about conditioned reality, which is our daily life, um, as having three basic underlying characteristics. One was its very fleeting nature. Things go. They just don't last. You can't really hold on to anything permanently. The second is going to be my topic tonight. Basic unsatisfactoriness, suffering, or the Pali word is dukkha. Um, the third is the very difficult for some people teaching on no self or essencelessness. And that's a topic for another time. But that, by mentioning these three characteristics, um, I set in context that we're talking chiefly about one of them tonight, which is Dukkha. At the time of the Buddha's birth, wise men had come and predicted that he would either be a great worldly leader or a great spiritual teacher. Now his father, who was a middling royal, I guess you would say in those days, much preferred that he become a great worldly leader, so he tried to protect his young son from seeing any suffering because he knew that awareness of suffering is a great spur to spiritual practice. But at one point, um, the young 
man's managed to elude his father's carefulness and came in touch with suffering in the world by seeing a sick person, corpse, um, aged person, and he decided to embark on a spiritual life. What he said is, many, many times, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. This emphasis of the Buddha's on suffering is not pessimistic because the great point of his teaching is that we can overcome suffering. And he taught us how to do it. He taught the path that leads us out of it. In the first sermon after his enlightenment, he taught the four basic noble truths about suffering that form his core message. And only some suffering is evident, pain or hardship. The first noble truth says that earthly life itself is ultimately unsatisfactory because it can give us no lasting, permanent, and true satisfaction. Certainly we have good minutes, we have happy times, but they end. And there's this continual <coughs> flow of no final resting place peace or total satisfaction in this life. So that was the first of these, these, these truths. The second is the cause of our suffering, which is craving. Whenever we have a pleasant experience or see the possibility of one, we're conditioned to react with greed. People who have wrestled with addictions probably best understand the suffering that craving can bring. Um, but all of us have had something that we felt we can't live without. A person, a job, a possession. We know the truth that craving brings suffering. Whenever we're faced with unpleasant experience, we want to strike at it, push it away, lash out, become fearful or angry or grieve over it. <coughs> we feel driven to say the hateful word back or shrink away from a frightening duty or indulge in self-pity. This also is craving. It's the aversive side of craving. It, again, like wanting something we don't have, is wanting things to be other than they are. And when we want something to be other than it is, we're craving and we're suffering. Even when our experiences don't grip us strongly, when they're relatively neutral, uh, we still don't manage to stay balanced and present without reacting because we will space out. We're excitement junkies. Uh, really pleasant stuff or unpleasant stuff grabs us and gets our attention. But we'll space out and lose track of the present moment when experience is neutral. So these are some of the conditioning toward craving that is the cause of our suffering. The Buddha's third noble truth is that suffering ends when we stop craving. When we no longer react to our experiences with greed or aversion or spacing out, we no longer suffer. In very deep practice, we experience this truth in a very paradoxical way. At some point, we get to the place where the mind simply says, okay, it's unpleasant, I don't have to react to it. Or it's pleasant, I don't have to grab for it. And then 
we come to realize this very, very paradoxical thing. We can be in the middle of very deep pain and not be suffering. There's a difference between pain and suffering, mental or physical pain. There's a difference between that and suffering. And when we, it, the suffering starts when we crave, when we want it to be other than it is. So, suffering ends when we stop craving. The Buddha's final fourth noble truth gave what is called the Eightfold Noble Path, the way out of suffering. And traditionally, this path is broken into three main parts. The morality. I mean, you've got to get your conduct in order if you expect to get your mind in order. So the morality steps, then the meditation steps, which start putting the mind in order, and then finally the wisdom steps, which bring um, our release and, and our freedom. And, of course, they don't they all interweave with each other. And again, before we move on to talk about suffering in some other ways, I want to repeat that the Buddha's emphasis on suffering is not pessimistic, because the reason he spoke so much about it was to show us how to get out of it. Uh, meditation teacher Christina Feldman wrote, quote, the simple statement that there is suffering is not life-denying, negative, or depressing. Avoidance is life-denying, close quote. Spiritual practice brings, quote, a radical change of heart that allows us to explore whether there is a way of relating to this maze of suffering with wisdom, balance, and compassion, close quote. The Buddha began his first sermon by listing some unsatisfactory facts about conditioned reality. He said, quote, birth is suffering. Aging is suffering, like that hip and knee that don't want to let me sit on the floor anymore. Uh, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what we want is suffering, close quote. He concluded that all the processes of our body and mind are ultimately suffering until we learn the way out. A single newscast, if we're, if we're not desensitized to it, and it's so easy to get desensitized, but a single newscast can show how very much the world as a whole suffers, but we really don't have to look outside of our own beings to understand suffering. Any of you who have done any real sitting of meditation practice at all, know that you find it inside, the suffering inside your own being. Both mental suffering and physical pain mark the lives of all of us. The environment repeatedly delivers blows, and other people can be misguided and insensitive. Much interpersonal suffering comes from misunderstandings that remain an unsettled confusion. The unsatisfactoriness of even pleasant experience becomes very apparent. All pleasures end. All favorite cups eventually break. So Thai master Ajahn Chah encouraged us, enjoy your favorite cup 
as if it were already broken. You know it's going to break. You don't grieve as much when it's gone. You've accepted the fact of that these things don't last. All relationships end in parting by death, if not before. What is never secure, never lasting, can never be lastingly satisfactory. However beautiful, delightful, inspiring, or joy-filled an experience, it will end, and therefore brings no enduring happiness. Buddhist teachings say, quote, we are suddenly seized by a great realization that none of these objects is dependable. There's no refuge in them. Now I'm going to slip over to talk about, we're going to go back and forth between John of the Cross and the Buddha. And I want to talk a lot about John of the Cross and the suffering that he said that craving causes. And he spoke of craving as having disordered desires. And he listed their harmful effects, which correspond beautifully to Buddhist teachings. He spoke of five specific ways that he said attachments make us suffer. First, he said, they're wearisome and tiring. Quote, they resemble little children, restless and hard to please, always whining to their mother for this thing or that. Close quote. There's no rest because even if we satisfy a desire, more are going to spring up and cause more hunger for more things. The second thing he said is that they torment us. And the more intense the desire, the greater the torment. John said when we're in strong desire, we're like prisoners. We're bound by the chains of the attachment. Quote, like thorns. The appetites wound and hurt, stick to a person, and cause pain. The fire of anguish and torment increases." Close quote. The Buddhist word for disordered desires is kilesa. Kilesa has commonly um, been translated as defilement, but Pali scholars say a more literal translation would be torment of the mind. So when John talks about how attachment and desires, how craving torments us, this again is a beautiful parallel to the Buddhist understanding that these cravings are torments of the mind. They actually torture us and trap us in endless rounds of suffering. From the Dhammapada, quote, Beset by craving, the masses run about like ensnared hares. Held fast by fetters, they come to suffering again and again for a long time. Close quote. Uh, in case there are any in here not familiar with the Dhammapada, it's a collection of aphorisms of the Buddha. Um, not a bad place to start learning something about the teachings of the Buddha. And I recommend people going to it. Try to read at least two different translations simultaneously because there are wide variations among the translations, and you can maybe get closer to it if you parallel some um, when you read it. A third thing that John of the Cross said that appetites do is they darken and blind the understanding. Like having a cataract on your eye, he said. Quote, as often as people are led by their appetites, they're blinded. 
Just as we might say that when a blind person guides someone with good eyesight, both are blind. Close quote. And of course the Buddhist teachings also say that allowing appetites to prevail increases our delusion. Our, our, they blind, it blinds us. Here's another quote from the Dhammapada. Fools are enemies to themselves doing ill deeds that produce bitter fruit. So long as an evil deed has not yet borne fruits, the fool thinks it as sweet as honey. Close quote. So the more appetites prevail, the more we fail to clearly see and understand. Appetites have their own will and we can't reason with them. Um, they will always co-opt our understanding into justifying and supporting them. And then we can come to see things only as our desires color them and can seriously deceive ourselves. The fourth harm that John of the Cross said that appetites bring is defilement, which is the common translation of the Buddhist kilesa. <coughs> the Dhammapada says, quote, taints indeed are all evil things in this world and in the next. By oneself committing evil does one defile oneself. By oneself not committing evil does one become pure, close quote. And John of the Cross had, gave a, a beautifully poetic explanation of this. He said, strokes of soot will ruin a perfect and extraordinarily beautiful portrait. So too, inordinate appetites defile and dirty us. So this kind of soot or ugliness is opposed to the kind of purity of mind that we have to have to reach spiritual realization. And finally, John Cross said that appetites weaken us and make it more difficult to behave properly. They sap the strength that we need for virtue. Again, from the Dhammapada, I happen to like it on this topic. Um, quote, those who are corrupt do to themselves what only an enemy might wish for them. Easy to do are things that are harmful to oneself but exceedingly difficult it is to do what is good and beneficial." Close quote. So in sum, what John of the Cross called inordinate appetites and what the Buddhist teachings call kilesa have these five general effects on us, all of them suffering. They weary us, torment us, blind us, defile us, and weaken us. John of the Cross was pretty good at having lots of classifications and lots of numbers. Those of you who have read in the Buddhist sutras know that um, Buddhists are probably better than anybody at classifying and enumerating things. They like numbered lists of things. And they've sorted out, one of the things that has been sorted out are the various kinds of dukkha or suffering that can assail us. And this kind of a listing, though, explaining the different kinds of suffering can help us to recognize some experiences as suffering that we might not have previously considered were suffering. So some, some things we can easily see as dukkha, but others are subtler. So how do we suffer? Let me count the ways, <laughs> to paraphrase the poet. First, there's what they call Dukkha Dukkha. <laughs> this obvious suffering includes the, the discomforts of many bodily processes, 
hunger, tensions, aches, sleepiness, accidents, illness, aging, death, the radical vulnerability and fragility of the body. Um, uh, Burmese monk Upandita said, quote, one begins to see this body as a mass of painful and unsatisfactory phenomena, dancing without respite to impermanence's tune. Bodily suffering is with us throughout the day. We've learned to divert attention from most of our minor itches and aches um, and till you trench it still in meditation and then you start realizing how much you've diverted your attention for by just pushing it away before you're even fully aware of it. But even then, eventually, with, as we age, bodily dysfunction tends to catch up with us. We also at all at times undergo some illness and many of us suffer at least one accident in the course of a lifetime. Physical suffering often makes or breaks people. Some people become very bitter, demanding, and self-centered as a result of physical suffering. But for others, it seems to be a real opening to becoming um, invested in spiritual practice. Uh, I don't know how many of you have had a chance to meet or sit with um, Insight Meditation Society teacher Carol Wilson. Anything you know, Carol? Um, she was diagnosed some years ago with a particular nasty disease called scleroderma. Um, this disease hardens body tissues and it gives your face a kind of mask-like appearance. And it causes deep pain in your joints because they're, they're ossifying. They won't move normally. They're, they're like turning to bone almost. Um, uh, it took some time of, of deep pain for them to even properly diagnose her fin finally. But, um, and most important about this disease, it can strike an inner organ at any time. And if it starts ossifying that, you're dead within a month or so. So you can have this all of a sudden happen to you that you know you're going to die real soon. Um, I've watched Carol over the years as she dealt, has dealt with this disease, and it has made her so increasingly beautiful. If you have a chance to sit with Carol, I would encourage you to take it. She's almost radiant. She really is. Um, and in talking to her about this at one time, I mean, she said, well, you know, when you really have to face death and you have to face the fact that this body is just a massive suffering, she says you're either going to go over or you're going to learn to deal with it. And she said once you, you get over a certain hump in dealing with it, um, hey, you've been there. It's, it's not a threat to you anymore because you've been there. And, and it is just, so for some people it can work wonderful effects while it destroys others. A second kind of suffering translates as the loss of happiness. It's called Viparanama Dukkha. And this refers to those torments of the mind that I've already talked about some. Um, unwelcome emotions, obsessive patterns of thought, inability to control your mind, unpleasant moods, mental illness. All of these are a loss of happiness. And frequently, mental discomfort is more painful than our body distresses. Um, 
Insight practice has really revolutionized my understanding of mental and emotional disorders. Um, and if you don't remember from the introduction, I'm a psychologist. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. Most of the labels in the psychiatric lectionaries, excluding a few conditions that have obvious biological causation, most of what we call the mental and emotional um, disturbances are sim they simply refer to different ways in which we trap ourselves in problem thoughts. In most conditions of disturbed emotion or thinking, we're not consciously aware of the maladaptive patterns of thought that underlie our suffering. And although these distorted opinions contradict real experience, they went out in the end over people suffering psychiatric disorders. But we all have some kinks in our thinking. And if you've worked with, with observing this in your practice at all, you realize you just can't believe the stuff this thing coughs, coughs up. Coughs <laughs> up all sorts of nonsense. And when you start believing what it coughs up, instead of saying, oh, that's just another thing it's creating, um, until you can get to that point, it can really torment you. Well, it puts the patients who have gotten locked into these distorted ways of thinking in psychiatric illness, it puts them in a living hell, really. Um, their, their symptoms disturb their self-management and self-understanding and, and create suffering not only for themselves, but also for the people who have to deal with them. Um, anorexics, eating disorders, the, uh, one of the eating disorders, Anorexics see themselves as too fat, even though they're always seriously underweight. They've just got this distorted perception and understanding of themselves, and they can't get rid of it. Hypochondriacs constantly monitor body sensations carefully and interpret slight changes as having medical importance. Depressed people automatically see almost all situations in negative ways leaving themselves incapable of finding joy. Many of us create negative self-understandings that leave us feeling inadequate or bad, or that there's something wrong about us. Short of psychiatric diagnoses, we all have some unrealistic interpretations of and expectations for ourselves that cause us to suffer, to say nothing of the moods and emotions that can pull and shove us around until we've learned to work with them um, and, and not get caught in them in our practice. One psychologist who's also a meditator wrote, quote, since nearly everyone has a certain number of neurotic thoughts, mental health is dependent upon the ability to recognize that they are just thoughts, close quote. This is an ability, of course, that our meditation practice gives us. Most of our meditation practice actually works with this kind of suffering, the loss of happiness, the torments of the mind. Practice helps us decondition our quasi-automatic mental reactions, um, those leaps into unhelpful thinking, which in its train produces problem emotions. However, of course, it's not simple and it doesn't occur overnight. We have to co consistently apply ourselves to our practice to develop this skill. So we have dukkha dukkha, that 
obvious stuff. We have the loss of happiness. And a subform of this loss of happiness is the dupa of incessant change that we can't alter or control. Um, it's called a Nietzsche dukkha by some people. It's the idea that if nothing lasts, we can't rely on anything to be a dependable support for us. And this is clearly suffering. Although this suffering touches all of our lives regularly, many people find it hard to accept. Um, one of the, the sweeter um, Buddhist stories, I think, is the story of a woman, Kisa Gotami, whose only child had died. She carried the body to the Buddha, begging him to heal the boy because she knew that he had great powers. In his compassion, the Buddha knew that she needed to accept this loss. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll help you, but here's what you have to do. You have to bring me a mustard seed from a house in the nearby city that has not known death. So she eagerly set out but quickly found that each home had to report that they had known death. Finally, understanding came, and she went back to the Buddha, asked to be admitted to his nuns, and became a great Buddhist saint after she took her son to the charnel grounds to, um, to be cremated. So often we try to buck this reality of change. In our practice, we might waste meditation time trying to hold on to the past and replaying, rehashing, or just enjoying old memories. When we try to cling to what was pleasant in the past, we're unwilling to relinquish what no longer is. I have a note here. <laughs> um, Thich Nhat Hanh pointed out, quote, it is not impermanence that makes us suffer. It's wanting things to be permanent when they're not. Close quote. That's, that's the problem. Next kind of suffering, samsara dukkha. Harassing experiences ceasingly batter our senses. This is called samsara dukkha. Since many of us long to have experiences, seeing experiences as suffering might sound strange initially. But think of the relief you feel when a humming refrigerator goes off, or the neighbor finally turns off his or her lawnmower when they're mowing the lawn. <laughs> the relief, you hadn't even realized how much it was bugging you under your skin until it finally stops. Eventually, even pleasant sensory experiences become undesirable when we've had too much of them. When we're fully satiated with a meal, we would prefer not to taste or smell food. Lying in bed is very pleasant when we're tired, but we want nothing more than to be freed from these touch sensations when we're forced to stay there for long periods, like if we're bedridden with illness. The mo I, I do a lot. Of, I, I bring meditation into prisons. That's one of the things I like to do. And one of the most common complaints I hear in this prison work is that there's no place where one can get away from the constant noise. It's probably prisons and jails are about the noisiest places in the world. Um, people 
have shaken babies who don't stop crying. Some have even killed them when they could no longer handle the noise. Assaulting someone with loud sound and very bright light is a recognized form of torture. Um, I can't read my own edition. So anyway, clearly this barrage of stimulation that our senses endure constantly is a form of suffering. After retreats, many people have commented to me about how delicious the silence was. And these are often people who were very afraid of it going in. So that constant battering of sensation is another form of dukkha. The very deepest of all the forms of dukkha, Sankara dukkha, stems from the mind-created prison of clinging to the sense of being a separate self and from attachment to the processes that make up that being. This keeps us in the continual enterprise of protecting, defending, and enhancing that sense of self. And it can keep us from recognizing unpleasant truths about our being that we need to see. <coughs> Activities like securing the food and clothing we want for this self, finding entertainment for it, grooming it, providing it desired goods, trying to protect it from undesired experiences, and so on, is time-consuming and exhausting. Because of our attachment to self, we're commonly out of touch with our connectedness with everything around us, which Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. And we're left in the, in the isolation of separation. French philosopher Sartre said, hell is other people. I think he was close to right in a way. Hell is seeing others as other from myself. Hell is that sense of separation, being isolated, alone, um, cut off in this thing that I call self. Um, this leaves us feeling vulnerable and powerless. Suffering seems to be innate in separate existence. I often think of this to go back to something Christian right now, a passage in the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans where he talks about the suffering of the created world, yearning and straining toward its redemption. And um, that's basically the condition that we're in, this suffering of yearning to be freed from it. Now I'm going back to John of the Cross again. I said we're going to flip-flop and show parallels among um, some of the things that they've said. Because a thing that John wrote about also was the suffering involved in being attached to even good things. Uh, another of his lists. He talked first of all about temporal goods. And by that he meant material riches, position, status, fame, marriage, relatives, family. Actually, the Buddhist Vasudhimaga has a very similar list, family, disciples, projects, dwellings. Um, all of these things, there's nothing wrong with them in themselves. They're good things. But when we get attached to them, when we 
can't just be with them as they are, but develop that sense of possessiveness, of ownership, of have to have that clutching at them, then we create suffering for ourselves. Um, they also can obstruct our, our path of spiritual work because of the attachment that can start to rule us to, with these things. Um, obsession with them blunts the mind toward spiritual life, according to John of the Cross. Then he talked about natural goods, things like beauty, grace, attractiveness, good intelligence, discretion, talents, and other abilities. And again, nothing wrong with these things. They're good things. But if we cross the line where we start getting heady about these things, um, and, and, and again, that possessiveness, these are mine, this is me, and even sometimes appropriate spiritual experiences to ourselves as a possession, as a personal possession, um, we get very overly self-satisfied, and this make, can make us very complacent um, regarding spiritual practice. And, and what could sort of be a play on words, I don't know if it is, the Pali word mata, um, translated conceit or self-intoxication, um, is sort of what John is referring to here. And the teachings say that this mata leads to pamata, which is negligence in spiritual practice. So it's exactly the same thing that John of the Cross had to say about these things. That you get overhyped on your own assets. Um, you you lose your you lose your sensitivity to, to to appropriate spiritual work. And then John of the Cross talked about sensory goods, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and so forth. We all have some limiting attachments to sense stimulation. Um, but overvaluing them brings um, distraction and discomposure. And clutching at these things, the Buddha said, is like clinging to a red-hot iron ball. We know they're hurting us, but we stupidly refuse to let go. Uh, some of you have probably heard the, the, the Buddhist story about trapping monkeys in Southeast Asia. They cut a little hole in a coconut, hollow it out, cut a hole that's big enough for a monkey's hand to go in if it's open. They put a little piece of banana in there. The monkey smells the banana, reaches in, grabs the banana, but the hole is too little to pull out the fisted hand. Now, all the monkey has to do to be free is let go of the banana, and the hand will come out. But they say, you know what? They never do. And the monkey hunter comes along, and there's the banana trapped, and there's the monkey trapped by its greed for that little piece of banana. And they liken that to what we do to ourselves when we're trapped by our greed for particular kinds of sensory experiences. John of the Cross next talked about what he called moral goods. And he said, we're moving to a different level when we move here. Things like virtues, good habits, good manners, morality, compassionate action. I mean, these are obviously very good things, and they have some direct spiritual value in themselves. John said they're the noblest of human possessions. But even these can cause great harm. They make us vain and presumptuous and lead us, can lead us to look down on other people. Um, 
you only have to look around the world and, and you can tell that people who are smug in their satisfaction of their own sense of righteousness create an awful lot of suffering for other people in the world, too. Um, the guardians of, of morality for everybody else and wanting to impose their, their own opinions on others. So these things cause suffering. And then John talked about supernatural goods. These are the spooky things. Um, he, he talked about, in, in Christian context, healing, miracles, prophecy, speaking in tongues, visions, and the such. But there are a lot of people who get attracted to spiritual practice for the, quote, spooky things. If we emphasize them or give them any importance, we can be greatly deceived. Um, I've known people who've chosen to meditate because they want unusual or odd or peculiar experiences or out of ordinary things to happen and they're disappointed when they find out meditation is a different kind of thing. It's, it's not to, to get these um, odd and unusual and high experiences. Um, so this again, um, it messes us up when, when they, they can be good things if, if they're used for other people. And I've known people who have the gift of reading other people's hearts. I know a couple of them. I'm blessed in that regard. When these things are used for the good of other people, it's one thing. But when you get high on them, it's another. And then finally, John talked about spiritual goods that can be helpful if we use them as means. But many people, when they work with spiritual goods, they get attached to the object itself instead of what it points to. Um, he talked about Christian things like people who might get attached to a particular crucifix or a particular object like that. But Buddhists can find spiritual objects that they get attached to also, and they might be helpful at some point in spurring them to spiritual practice, but if you start clinging to them, then they cause darkness and suffering. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the healing effect that accepting certain kinds of suffering can have on us. And we find this in both meditation practice and in life. We first have to deal with the body. <coughs> Teresa of Avila, who was a companion of John of the Cross, wrote, the body becomes painful because it claims its rights, not realizing that its rebellion is suicidal. Uh, she said this in reference to people who quit meditating because their body gets uncomfortable when they do it. Um, so we first have to tame the body to meditation practice and then later accept some of the kind of body suffering that comes in deeper practice. Mahasi Saida taught, quote, as, as practice deepens, we generally experience many painful feelings arising in the body. While one is being noticed, another will arise elsewhere. And while that's being noticed, again, another will appear somewhere else, close quote. In very deep practicing, suffering can feel like it penetrates even to bone marrow. Now, over the course of practice, we get increasingly deeply into Subtle, unfinished business buried within our beings. Um, most uncovering comes with both physical and emotional pain. 
and we often want to turn our backs on whatever is painful, emotionally uncomfortable, embarrassing, stressful, etc. And when this surfaces in our practice, if we turn our back on it, our practice will go nowhere. Um, it's when these things start happening, it's you either do it or you quit. There's, there's no other, other way. You can't go around it. You go through it or you quit. And the kind of stuff that comes up with which I'm sure many of you are familiar um, is not only damage that we've inflicted on ourselves in the past, perhaps by poor choices that we made, it's also damage done to us by others. And some people seem to find it terribly unfair that their practice brings up damage inflicted on them by parents or teachers or by a religion that they, they found less, less more unhelpful than helpful or what have you. But, you know, we're all in this together. And... Um, we bear the wounds within ourselves that other people have inflicted on us by harmful action on us. And there's no such thing as a perfect parent, of course, and all of you out there who are parents know that. And all of you had parents, so you know it that way, too. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And so we deal with what our parents inflicted on us, and our children deal with what we inflict on them, and it's, it's all bound up together. But the fact is that the scars that this has left within us are things that need to be healed and, and taken care of because they affect our conduct, our thinking, our emotions and if, if we don't deal with them. And you might consider it unfair that you have to deal with how other people might have helped warp you. That's just the way it happens and you have to work with this. Um, Clearly seeing the impediments that are lurking in our hearts can also be extremely distressing because we find coming up the realization of uh, deep feelings, maybe grudges, painful emotions and the such that we didn't even really know our minds were sticky for. But they are attracting these things. When they come up, they have to be worked with according to the method of the practice too. Um, again, there's no way around it. Um, we recall things we've done in the past that didn't feel like it was terribly off when we did it, but we see it in a different light when we see it through, through meditative eyes. Um, a story that my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, he's not my only teacher, but even though, I mean, I've sat with the monks, but I still got more from Joseph, I think, than anybody else. A story Joseph tells on himself that some of you might have heard or might not have heard um, uh, is, is a good example of that. Um, he was in the Peace Corps, actually, when he found Buddhist practice. He was in Asia uh, working in the Peace Corps. And in preparation training for the Peace Corps, they had a number of things that they had trained them to do. And one of the things he had to do was to learn how to kill a chicken. And he said he felt a little squeamish about this when he was doing it. Like, why do I have to know how to kill a chicken when I'm going to be teaching English in the, in, in the Peace Corps? What he was going to be doing was... But he finally did it, and he said, I even have a photograph of myself holding up that murdered chicken that I had killed. And he said, I felt squeamish about it at the time. But he said later in meditation practice, 
the senseless, useless death of that chicken that he had. It came back, and he said it hit him with a pain that he wouldn't have believed was possible. Um, it, it's funny how the meditation practice recolors things that, that we didn't think that much of at the time. And many of us, of course, have, have had that experience. Um, something that helps, um, if, if you're in deep practice when this stuff kind comes, Something that helps is finding someone you can tell it to, to externalize it, to get it outside of yourself. Um, I'm a great fan of IMS, it's like Meditation Society, as you may or may not know. I, I did 12 consecutive three-month retreats. For 12 years, I did the three-month retreat, and it delighted me to see when, when there were monks and nuns practicing there, when one of them had something come up that was keep making his mind restless until he could externalize it, the way they helped each other out is you go over, the, the nuns go to nuns and the monks to monks, you go over, you tap one on the shoulder, even though that person's in deep practice, and they both squat down in, on their haunches and the one says what they have to say, then they both get up and go away. So they offer each other that service of giving them a chance to unburden something that's come up that is just keeps rattling around and won't let them go on until they've externalized it. Um, another thing that confession or admission of is very helpful is severe trauma or loss that you haven't fully acknowledged that comes up. Um, Many people are ashamed to acknowledge trauma that's happened to them, um, especially if it's abuse from another person, because the mind is a peculiar thing, and there's something in it that seems to say, there must be something wrong with me or I wouldn't be treated this way, and so they're ashamed to acknowledge it. Um, and the externalizing of that by acknowledging that it's happened to at least one other person um, is tremendously helpful in helping practice move forward. So these kinds of sufferings that come up in practice, these recalls of things that will sort of keep the mind in bondage and, and until you externalize it, so it's helpful to externalize it toward greater healing. Um, a few final things, well, I took almost an hour, I didn't think I was going to. A few final things ab about pain that I, li I, that I like to tell people. Most of us understand pain very poorly. It's a great blessing in a way, because any time there's pain of any kind, it's a signal that something is wrong. And if we know something is wrong, we've got a, a chance of maybe being able to fix it. Um, children who are born without the ability to feel pain, and they happen occasionally, very early in life they usually have terribly maimed bodies because they can put their hand on a hot stove and they don't feel any pain in, until their hand's virtually burned off. Um, so um, even even bodily pain, it's a, it's a signal to tell us to do something. The um, painful issues in our lives that we didn't deal with at the time that they were live issues that come back up in our meditation practice, that's something that's out of kilter in our, in our minds, something that, that there's something wrong there that needs to be fixed and we need to let it be there in the meditation practice and 
and work with it. The word pain comes from a Latin word that means penalty. Poena, P-O-E-N-A, penalty. Sometimes pain is the penalty we pay for ignoring the laws that govern our lives, physical, biological, social, civic, and moral laws. Sometimes it just seems to be a penalty for being human. Um, it's often a penalty for the disorder in our beings, whether it was self-inflicted or inflicted by others. Our state of being makes pain necessary. It's inherent in how we unfold. Um, Ayakema, the late Ayakema wrote, if dukkha is regarded as a calamity, we will not have enough space in the mind to trust. Resistance to dukkha saps our energy and the mind cannot stretch to its full capacity, close quote. So we have to learn to accept suffering, hopefully without agony, which comes from Greek word agon, which means struggle. Struggle increases suffering. With surrender, suffering lessens. With perfect acceptance and equanimity, suffering disappears. Locking on his name now. One of the Tibetan masters said that much of our suffering comes from our resistance to what suffering is there. So we're adding to our suffering when we resist the suffering that's present. When we accept the suffering that comes as we're revealed to ourselves in meditation, it unlooses powerful forces in us. Intimate knowledge of our own suffering makes us deeply sensitive to the suffering of others, and it brings the wisdom that comes with this understanding. So willingly embracing suffering in meditation develops the two wings of Buddhism, wisdom and compassion, and helps us become a different kind of presence in the world as these qualities deepen. And... Um, that's what I have to say, unless there are any questions. Do you think there is a uh, fine line between insanity and divinity? Um, that sort of it, the question was whether there's a fine line between insanity and divinity. That's close to the, the which people often say the the line between insanity and genius, I've heard said. Um, I actually don't. I think, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the writings of Ken Wilber, but I think Ken Wilber explained that quite beautifully. We have to come to a kind of selflessness eventually, but you have to have a sense of self before you can go beyond it. And insanity is not transcending a sense of self but a loss of it. And there's a big difference between being bogged down in a loss of it and transcending it. So I, I, I don't think, I think the middle ground is between the two is ordinary sense of self that you have to go through. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Little louder. There's. Could you perhaps put some perspective on the Christian view of Christ's suffering for us, for us in the world, um, I think it's crucifixion, and the view that you just talked 
Would someone who was halfway and heard it relay it? <laughs> I think you'll have to try again then. Okay. Could you um, give some perspective about the Christian view around Christ and his crucifixion and his dying for the, in suffering for the people of the world and the kind of dukkha that Buddhism, Buddhism brought, uh, that we know about in Buddhism? Did you hear that? She wants to know if the um, the suffering that Christ went through and and dying for others for the world. Oh, vicarious. And, and what and how that relates to the Buddhist perspective. Um, okay, um, I think the the question about vicarious suffering is is very interesting. She asked about the suffering of of the Christ for the world and how that might relate to. Um, Buddhist perspectives. I think the whole thing that makes the idea of the, the suffering of the Christ for the sake of all human beings, the only thing that makes that make sense in a way is Christian teachings of what they call the mystical body of the Christ, the fact that there is a way in which we're all united and all one and if, if there was total separation between us and, and, and the Christ, um, the only thing you would have is an absolutely, I think, horrible Christian teaching that some people believe, which is that you've got a God sitting up there who's like a kind of petty tyrant, and my honor's been impinged on because people have said that somebody's got to pay, damn it. And the only... The only thing that's worth avenging my honor would be of God itself, so a terribly insulting understanding of, of, of God and spirituality and everything else, in my opinion. But if you accept the Christian notion of the idea of the mystical body of the Christ, the essential oneness of all of us, then it's one body suffering together, but felt in different parts, which is very, very like the... the Thich Nhat Hanh probably has elaborated this better than anybody else with his notion of interbeing the connectedness of all of us. And um, some of you are familiar with his perfectly beautiful poem in which he's talking about that he's the young girl who was raped by the sea pirate and throws herself into the sea. But she's also that sea pirate whose heart hasn't softened and she's and 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 goes through we're all like one body. Um, that's how they both fit, I think, and that's the way in which the sense of, of the idea of the suffering of the Christ, we do bear each other's sufferings. In fact, going back to my talk, we bear this, this suffering of the parenting inflicted on us, and we and our children bear the suffering of our own unfinishedness and what we inflict on them. And I mean, it's... We're all bound up together in this, and, and the idea of, of, it's behind the idea of the Bodhisattva vow, in a way, the realizing that we are one being, and the idea of, I can't go to my own final finishedness until I bring everything with me, because there's not that separation. Um, so that's how I think 
they, they fit together. And I've often told people, um, I was reared a Christian, of course, the words the mystical body of the Christ were just beautiful words to me until I actually experienced it in Buddhist practice. Um, so I hope that helps some. With I hope it hit what you were saying at least some. suffering is about about pushing away or, <coughs> or well I guess I have a if, if, as I got your question I have a very short answer for you uh, it's a Buddhist story um, that there were a band uh, um, bandits pillaging villages and, and roaming around and as they were approaching each village everybody fled because they knew that they would be tormented tortured robbed their house, but they got their bodies out of the way of these bandits. But there, at one Buddhist monastery, the monk re refused to leave. And when the bandit approached him, he said, what are you still doing here? Don't you realize that I can run my sword through you without any feeling at all? And the monk just said, don't you realize I can have you run your sword through me without being moved by it at all? So when you, when, I mean, to, to get to that place is not an easy place to get to. But when you're at that place, no matter what befalls you, there's an okayness with it, and there isn't suffering. So you think that there is... <laughs> well, yeah, most of us are going to resist. <laughs> there's another... In the, in the scriptures, there's a, a place where the Buddha says... If, if they cut off your arms and they cut off their, your legs, it's called the parable of the saw, I think. They saw off your arms, they saw off your legs. If you react to any of that, you're not my disciple. Well, I mean, that's a very, very high place to be. But if you're not reacting to it, you're not suffering. And, I mean, I can tell you that I know personally you can be in extremely deep pain and not be suffering when you get to where your mind's not reacting. This happens to me only. No, I haven't got it to daily life yet. This happens only in deep meditation. 
But you can be in that place as very paradoxical. There can be a lot of pain, but you're not suffering because your mind is not reactive to it. I have a question about um, what you learned as a parent of eight. Um, also, as a scholar of Christianity and Buddhism, um, what, in very practical terms, your youngest as compared to your oldest child, um, how you're learning about suffering registered in what you taught them in or modeled for them about the nature of suffering. Um, so I guess the question is, how did you, um, what did that look like? What did you, what did you learn with your oldest child? How did that play out in the way that they lived their lives? And your youngest child. So, so what did you learn? The question is mostly about parenting. Question was what I've learned about parenting and how it's played out in the lives of my children. Unfortunately, as I think is the case for many parents, um, wisdom. What wisdom there is came a bit late. I had lunch. I, had, I just had dinner with, with, with a few friends, and somehow we, we were on that a little, and we said, well, you practice on the first few, and it, and it gets a little better with the laters. That's my but, question. Well, that's exactly what it is. But I was... Um, uh, my, my start of Buddhist meditation came when, when my last child left home. Uh, so, um, I mean, I had been a meditator in other traditions, but did not learn the things that I learned in Buddhist practice. Maybe the question then should be, what comes up as you meditate, as you think about your relationship with your, the series of your children, and, and what... I mean, the question becomes more and more personal as I ask it, but... Well, uh, of course, any, any parent who does a lot of meditation, the mistakes you've made will come up, often with a lot of remorse in, in, for them, you know. Um, you have to get to a place also where... And there is something that I have come to very, very deeply believe that most of the time, most of us do about the best that we can. We can hope to make our best a little better by, by doing practice, but most of the time, most people, I mean, nobody wakes up and says, yeah, I'm, I, I'm going to be a mean ass today, or I'm going to, you know, you, um, most of the time, most people do about the best they can. I don't think people set out to be cruel or evil or anything, but the pain, we act out of the pain inside our own beings often. Um, a French writer named Simone Weil, W-E-I-L, wonderful woman, died quite young. Um, she said, suffering is like a bad coin. People keep passing it on until finally somebody doesn't pass it on. And, um, I mean, ju you just reflect on your own life. Um, and, and you... You, you, you see that it was the pain in your own being out of which you acted when you did most of the things that you wish you hadn't done. It, when, when we're comfortable, we're good with other people. When, I'm not talking about just physical pain. I'm talking about all that unfinished emotional business and the, the snarls and the things that our minds are sticky for, you know. Um, 
take the, the I think I, one reason I'm drawn to prisons so much is so many of them, on the average, their childhoods were much more horrendous than most people's, and they were bent out of shape. Well, we're all bent out of shape to some extent, and we act out of our own bent out of shapeness until we start getting our bent out of shapeness under control. Kind of related question. Can you talk about uh, Christian uh, forgiveness and redemption and the Buddhist forgiveness and redemption? Do they look exactly the same? They take different expressions? Christians, for the most part, I'm not saying everybody, and and, and I don't like this position, they, for the most part, get the idea that when we screw up, we're offending God somehow, and, and God has to forgive us. When we screw up, it's, it's other people that we're hurting. I mean, that's who we're hurting. Um, and, and I think that's where there, there has to be the work of um, a forgiveness occur. I don't think forgiveness can be forced, and I often, when I teach metta practice to people, I always tell them, that's the loving kindness practice for those of you who might not know, I always tell them, if somebody has seriously abused you, wait until you've dealt with the residue that's left in you from that before you try to move to doing loving kindness practice for them and move to forgiveness because it's a process that has to come and it it, it can't be landed on or plastered over stuff that has to be looked at and worked through. Um, so I think the idea that there's some God out, out at some distant far reach who's offended that you have to be forgiven by is a mis- mistaken kind of notion. It's it's those whom you've harmed. The, the 12-step programs have that quite beautifully. That's who you go to. You know the people that you've harmed. So, my question is similar. What what did you pick up from Buddhist practice that you did not pick up from Christian mystical practice? Most, um, probably very importantly, self knowledge. Um, insight practice brings a kind of which, by the way, John of the Cross said. The only way to knowledge of God is through knowledge of self. He didn't say one way. He said the only way. You're not going to get to knowledge of God without knowledge of self. Um, But you can't do much insight practice without starting to know yourself better and better and better. Um, I think that's one of the major things. Also, the understanding that a thought is just a thought. Like many people, I tended to take my thoughts as something real and to believe they were real. And to come to the understanding that a thought is just a thought in the mind, you know. It's something that your mind has created and doesn't have any real reality in its own right. And so don't just accept them and believe them because they're there. Those are are the two things that come to my mind first. Just to turn that question the other way, what about things, you know, going the other direction? Things in Christianity that supplanted, you know, or add to the understanding of the Buddhist practice. 
That's a difficult one because I started in the one and built from it, you know. Um, I have, um, there, there are some perfectly beautiful saints and mystics. Mostly I love my Carmelites like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila who have a great, great deal of wisdom um, in them and, and many other writers. Um, hierarchical church structures and everything I have an awful lot of trouble with. And um, the, the Christianity that appeals to me now are the writings of the mystics and, and the saints. And um, But I also like to read Muslim mystics and, and I, I, I love a lot of the, the Muslim mystical poetry. I mean it's absolutely incredible. Um, a lot of Hindu stuff is, is very valuable to me, too. So um, I go to the practitioners rather than the structures. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.